Welcome to the 40 Minutes with a Pastor podcast. Join Pastor Brett as he spends 40 minutes discussing religion, the Bible, the gospel, and sometimes other pastors. Today's episode is 40 Minutes with Islam. And now, Pastor Brett. Thank you for that introduction, Patrick. So we're going to jump right into today's subject, and today we're going to spend 40 minutes talking about Islam. So let me start out with a story. I was a sophomore at Howes Anderson College in Hammond, Indiana. I had a free period that hour, so I was in my dorm room taking a nap like a normal college student after having had my lunch of ramen noodles. And I heard a lot of commotion out in the hallway. So I got up to go check it out, see what was going on. And man, there were a lot of rumors and gossip and murmurings, but man, nothing solid. We really couldn't nail down what was going on. So somehow the rumor had gotten around that a helicopter had slammed into the White House. And, you know, this was a very fundamental college, so we had no TV, we had no radios, and even our professors had even less information about what was going on than we did. But we did eventually get the news, and it was astonishing. Two planes had slammed into the World Trade Center towers in New York City. We later went to Buffalo Wild Wings to, is where we normally go watch wrestling on Monday nights. But we went there and we got there just in time to see a news report that those towers had failed. Later on, we heard about the plane that had went down in the Pennsylvania field and the plane that hit the Pentagon. And, and let me tell you something, it was a very... Very scary time. Now, the reason why I bring this up is not to be unfair to Muslims about this. That's not the point of me bringing this up. The point of this podcast episode is not to scare you about Islam. The reason why I'm bringing it up is because this was the first time in my life when I really even thought about Islam. I didn't know much about them. You know, I mean, I'm a seminary student in college studying to be a pastor, and you know, I was a sophomore in Bible college, and I didn't know hardly anything about Muslims. And I was surprised about how little I knew of them. Now, I, like I said, I want to be fair to Islam, and it might seem a little unfair to start this podcast episode about Islam off with talking about my 9-11 story, but that's just the first experience I had. And to be, to be fair, once again, many Muslims denounce what happened on 9-11. And I by no means and am I claiming to be an, ex, an expert on Islam. That's why today we're going to consult a lot of experts. I've got several sources we're going to go over today just to try to 
wrap our brains around what Islam is. I've recently taken a class on world religions through Trinity Baptist College, so I've got my notes from class, and I'm going to share some of those with you today. Another source I have, and man, I really want to recommend this book to you if you don't have it. This is a book called Kingdom of the Cults. It's by Walter Martin. Now, the book, uh, it's got a lot of good information about Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons and other things like that. It's a very eye-opening read. If you don't have it, I suggest that you buy it. Uh, There's another book that he put out called Kingdom of the Occults. I have both of those. But according to... According to uh, the Walter Martin in his book, he clearly says that Islam is not a cult as defined by the book. But the reason why he included it in the book is because, man, it's so prevalent in the United States today. Its influence in the Western world is growing Um You know, Islam is rapidly growing. There are cities such as Dearborn, Michigan, where, you know, the the Muslim population is just growing in leaps and bounds. And so what we're going to do is we're going to start out today at the beginning of this uh, podcast. At the beginning of this chapter on Islam in the book, there's a few quick facts about Islam. So I'm going to read those quick facts and then go over some information that we have available to us. Now, what's my purpose today? If you're listening today, if you're listening today and you don't know much about Islam and all you know, you're just like me, all you know is that some Muslims slammed into the Twin Towers in September 2011, then you need, you really need, especially if you're a Christian, to expand your understanding of this religion. You know, we are called as Christians to bring the gospel to everyone, to every corner of the earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe whatsoever things I tell you. So we should have knowledge of this. So if we ever run across a Muslim, especially one that's interested, we need to know how to share the gospel with them. So our first quick fact about Islam is this, the sovereignty of of Allah is paramount. He is the one true God. This is the first quick fact that's listed in the beginning chapter on Islam in the book, Kingdom of the Cults. And then it goes on to say that Muhammad is his chief prophet. So the sovereignty of Allah is paramount. He is the one true God. Muhammad is his chief prophet. Now, there are three major monotheistic religions in the world today. And, of course, monotheistic means they worship one God. 
These religions are Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. So these religions, they're also Abrahamic religions. They all come from Abraham. Now, of course, Christians believe in the Trinity, which is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But we still only believe in one God. There are three persons in one God, however. That is the Trinity, one God, three persons. Now, in Islam, Allah, which, by the way, uh, just means God. Allah just means God. It's the Arabic word for God. In Islam, Allah is radically one. There is no trinity. God has no son. In fact, if today you were to go to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem and where, where the Jewish temple was, and where the Jewish temple was located, Today, there is, a mo- there is a mosque called the Dome of the Rock. There's an inscription on that mosque. And the inscription on the Dome of the Rock says, quite clearly, God has no son. Now, Jews, of course, also believe in that, in, in that there is only one God. Of course, they don't believe in the Trinity either. Isaiah 44, 6 says, The Lord is Israel's king and defender. He is the Lord of armies. This is what the Lord says. I am the first and the last. There is no God except me. De- Deuteronomy 4, 35 says that they, the mightiest, know that the Lord, he is God. There is none else beside him. But we all know the Hebrew word for God is Elohim. And that heme at the end of that word is a plural suffix. So even in Hebrew, the name of, in in the Hebrew name of God, there's a plurality. But for Islam, Allah is one. Allah is powerful. So much so that Allah is not bound to anything, not even himself. Now, this is a big difference between the God of Christianity and the God of Islam. The God of Christianity is bound by his word. It's bound by righteousness. But in Islam, Allah isn't. In fact, did you know that in Islam, Allah does not even have to keep his promises? And let me tell you, when I heard that, Man, I was floored. When I learned that in class, I was stunned to say that there's a God that can lie, that there's a God that can sin, that there's a God that doesn't have to keep his word, that there's a God that doesn't have to keep his promises or his covenants. Man, that's crazy to think about. When Jehovah God makes a promise, he has to keep it. Man, when God makes a covenant with Israel, that covenant must be kept. So while we're discussing Allah, I'd like to share with you one other bit of information about the God of Islam that really I have a hard time wrapping my head around. Did you know, and this was another thing that I found interesting, 
Did you know that Allah swears by inferior things? That's right. Allah swears by the sea, swears by the stars in the sky, all inferior things, whereas the God of the Bible only swears by himself. And I, I thought that was pretty cool. This is actually, this statement is actually a confession of Islam that we're going over. It's a statement of their faith. If you want to be a Muslim, you have to make this statement with faith that Allah is God and Muhammad is his prophet. You have to proclaim it and believe it. And, you know, I want to remind you that this is only a 40-minute time limit, 40-minute podcast. So we're, we're not going to cover every single aspect of Islam. In fact, if y'all want to hear more of this, I will do a part two. And maybe in our part two, we will get into the history and some other things about the religion, maybe actually dive into this chapter in this book, Kingdom of the Cults. But my main focus today is just to give you some core beliefs, some quick facts, and then give you a gospel response to Islam. Okay, so that's the first quick fact. So let's go on to quick fact number two. Quick fact number two about Islam, according to Kingdom of the Cults, which is this chapter on Islam, is that there is no original sin, that humans are not predisposed towards uh, sins. They commit sins, but they're not predisposed towards sin. Now, if you'll know that original sin is the backbone of the gospel, it's why we need redemption. God gave us a perfect, sinless world, but he also gave us a free will, and man messed it up. Man perverted this perfect world that God gave us, man sinned. Romans chapter 5 and verse number 12 says, Whereas, uh, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for they all have sinned. In Christianity, we know and we understand that we are born sinners. We were born evil. And the only good that we have in us comes from above, comes from the father of likes, like it says in James. But in Islam, this isn't so. In Islam, sin is ignorance. You sinned just because you didn't know any better. In Islam, sin is forgetfulness. You you knew to do the right thing, but oops, you just forgot. Oops, I did it again. We also learned in class that sin is intention. If I intended to do wrong, so I could have an intention to do wrong, but you know, uh, even that intention to do wrong is a sin. 
even if I didn't actually go through the act. Where this is all opposed to Christianity, which we understand that we can't help but to do wrong. Romans 3.10 says, as is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So in Islam, it isn't even necessarily an action, but it's the thought. You know, it's it's the thought of doing it that can even uh, that can even be a sin. Which, by the way, this comes to me as something else that's different between Islam and Christianity. In Christianity, uh, yes, you can have sinful thoughts, but you know, you are not. Temptation is not a sin in the Bible. It's not. Jesus was tempted of the devil, but yet without sin. So being tempted is not sin. But in Islam, just the thought of sin, just the fact that it popped in your head, it's a sin. But then there's the unforgivable sin. And of course, the unforgivable sin is blasphemy, which is rejecting uh, the Quran and rejecting Islam, rejecting Allah. Okay, on to quick fact number three. And it says, Jesus was not the son of God. He is revered as a spiritual guide. So they do not believe that he is God or that he is the son of God. In fact, the Quran says that Jesus did not die on the cross, but that people there were tricked into thinking that it was Jesus on the cross, but it really wasn't. Muslims believe that Jesus was raised to heaven without being put on the cross because he was a prophet. Now, I've heard Muslims say, that Jesus never claimed to be God. And I want to spend just a little time on this one. I could give you a whole list of verses that refute this claim that Jesus never claimed to be God. How about when Jesus called himself the Lord of the Sabbath? I don't know about you, but I think the Lord of the Sabbath is God. It would be no one other than God. What about when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am? That's a pretty definitive statement of Jesus' deity. Or when Jesus healed the man who was lowered through the roof, what did he say to him? He said, your sins be forgiven. And one of the, one of the Pharisees who were nearby rightly exclaim, no one can forgive sin but God. Well, that's what Jesus was trying to teach them. Jesus was trying to, to show them because he has the authority to forgive sins that he is God. All of these are good verses to show Jesus's deity. But I'll tell you, for my money, for my money, the best verse that shows that Jesus is God is a verse where Jesus claimed to be God 
three times in one verse. And it's Mark 14, 62. So Jesus here stands before Pilate and he says, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. So just a little context and backstory is what's going on here is Pilate is asking Jesus if he is the Messiah. And Jesus's response to this is to quote three Old Testament scriptures in one verse. Three different ways of saying, I am the Messiah. I am God. I am the one who is to come. The first verse that Jesus quotes is Exodus 3.14, which God tells Moses that he is the I am. God said to Moses, look, when you go to the children of Israel, you go and you tell them the I am hath sent you. That is my name. And if you put this with the with the famous seven I am statements of John, it's very clear what Jesus is trying to say. He even said to Abraham, before Abraham was, I am. And then the second statement that Jesus quotes to Pilate, it comes from Psalms chapter 110, verse one, where it says, the Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So, of course, Psalms 110 is a messianic psalm, and we have where it says, The Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand. So who is this person who is Lord that will sit beside the Lord at the Lord's right hand and make the enemies his footstool? What's the Messiah? And then, of course, finally, the third scripture that Jesus quotes to Pilate is Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 through 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Clearly, Jesus is claiming to be this Messiah. He is claiming to be the I am. He is claiming to be the Lord that sits at the right hand of God. He is the son of man that will come in the clouds of heaven. Jesus is God. But to a Muslim, Jesus is not God. To a Muslim, Jesus is just a good prophet that didn't die for our sins, that did not shed his blood. That's, that's what they believe. So the next quick fact in our discussion today is that salvation is by the will of God through human obedience to God's laws. So this is very interesting. In Islam, 
you are not assured salvation. Our Bible says, these things I write unto you that ye may know that ye have eternal life, but in Islam, you are not assured salvation. In fact, your best chance at salvation is to adhere to the law of the Quran. When you get to the afterlife, the afterlife in Islam is a bridge. And while you're waiting to cross that bridge, there's a long queue, a long line full of Muslims waiting to go across this bridge into the afterlife. Now, while you're waiting in this line, you can call out to Muhammad and plead with him to, 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 to plead to Allah on your behalf. And he may do it. He may not. Maybe Allah will show favor on you, and maybe he won't. After all, I mean, it, it, no man is righteous, so God or Allah doesn't have to show favor on anybody if he doesn't want to. And then eventually you're going to get to that bridge. And then as you walk across that bridge, you will carry your sins as burdens. And if your burden is too great, you will lose balance on that bridge and you will fall into hell. Now, as long as you're not an infidel, meaning someone who denies Allah, uh, you may one day be able to escape hell. Hell is porous in Islam. Uh, but of course, an infidel is someone who denies Allah. But if you're not an infidel, you could get out of hell one day. But this is the problem, not only with Islam, but every other religion out there. And that is, is that your entrance into heaven, your way to God, your way to the afterlife, your escape from hell is dependent on you as a human. You will go to heaven and you will go to hell based on what you do. Christianity is the only religion in the world where your salvation is not dependent on you. Your salvation is actually dependent on somebody else. Our salvation is as Christians, is based solely on the gospel, is based solely on the work of Christ. The completed work on the cross of Calvary that Jesus paid for, that he made atonement for. He was the propitiation for our sins. And in Islam, you have no assurance that you're going to heaven. You just got to do your best and hope. But as Christians, we know where our hope is. Christians understand that our best is not good enough. It's not. Now, finally, this is the last quick fact about Islam in the Kingdom of the Cults book. And it is that the Quran is the perfect word of Allah. Now, Muhammad never performed any miracles. In fact, the only miracle that Muhammad performed was the giving of the Quran. Uh, this is a man who was considered to be illiterate. However, he was able to recite 
to the world this this elegant, eloquent Quran. And man, they love to rely on the eloquence of the Quran. In fact, the word Quran means the recitation. And it, it's actually said that the Quran came from Allah through the angel Gabriel. And some other facts about that is that if you try to, you know, corner a Muslim using the English Quran and you trap them in a contradiction, they're just going to say, oh, the Arabic's better. You, you need to know it in Arabic. So for them, Arabic is better than English or any other language. So if you really, really want to understand what the Quran says, you've got to learn Arabic. And that reminds me of a couple of King James onlyists that I know of that think that the English King James Bible is the only way to God. A couple of other quick facts about the Quran. There's a golden version in heaven. The Quran is eternal. And the Quran is without error. Now, you, you, you can't go back to the original Quran uh, because many years ago, there was a guy named Uthman, and he gathered up all the versions of the Quran and destroyed the ones that he didn't agree with. And so now we only have one edition of it. So we don't know what the original said. The Bible, on the other hand, we have many thousands of Greek copies. And we have, if, if you put in the other uh, languages that we have, other manuscripts and other languages other than Greek, we have about 20,000 Greek copies, not to mention the millions of pages of early church fathers' sermons who preached on every verse of the New Testament. And we can compare all of these to make sure we know what the original writers of the New Testament wrote. But Islam can't do this. They can't. They can't go back and say, oh, this is what was originally written in the Quran. They just have to take on the Uthman edition and make sure that and hope that was the right one. Okay, so that's all the quick facts about Islam. And, and one of the things I would like to cover in our time remaining is kind of just some pointers on how to share the gospel with someone from Islam. Just, just some things to consider, some things to think about. In his book, Walter Martin gives three topics of discussion between a Christian and a Muslim. And these topics are the nature of God, the identity of Jesus, the identity and deity of Jesus Christ, and salvation by grace alone apart from works. Now, Christians can share with Muslims that God loves them. Divine love is a concept often missing from Islam. John 3.16 is a great verse to share, especially if you've got a Muslim that's open and intent to listening. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. A lot of times when you bring up Jesus as 
Jesus to a Muslim, uh, you're, the Muslim is going to refuse to hear about Jesus, especially in the New Testament. And, you know, they believe that the scriptures have been distorted and perverted and changed. Try to show Jesus in the Old Testament because, you know, Muslims, they're going to respect the Old Testament a little bit more than the New Testament. And then for an interested Muslim, try to bridge the gap between the Old and New Testament. Show how Jesus truly is the one and only way way to salvation by bridging that gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Also bring up that the Old Testament was around long before Muhammad was born. The New Testament had at least 9,000 manuscript copies before Muhammad. Muslims love to cite, and I said this earlier, they love to cite the Quran's elegance as evidence for its inspiration. Well, you know what? There are other elegant books. What about the Iliad, the Odyssey, Moby Dick? They're all eloquent. Does that make them divine revelation as well? Another thing Uh, that the evidence shows is, like I said, the Bible has not been tampered with. That Uthman revision, we we can't know what the Quran, if it's ever been tampered with or not. But the Bible, we can, if it's tampered with, we'll know, we can figure it out. The Quran also contradicts itself. And like I said, in a 40-minute podcast, I don't have time to go through every contradiction, but Walter Martin in his book does list a few. One of the things he brings up is that Noah had a son that died in the flood. That's, that's something that the Quran says. It's a contradiction. The Quran also contradicts Luke when it says that Zechariah was speechless for three days. And it claims that Muhammad uh, fills the prophecy in the Torah and in the Gospels. Muslims love to use Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18, where Moses prophesied that God would raise up a prophet like him in their midst, and they attest that this prophet is Muhammad. But chapter 34, verse 10 says that there is not a prophet seen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. The Quran was revealed to Muhammad by the angel Gabriel and not directly by God. Muhammad never claimed to be a descendant of Israel, but of Ishmael. Now, here's another thing that I found interesting. John 14, 16 reports that Jesus said that the Father will give a helper to his disciples and that he would abide with them forever. The word helper, or more accurately, it's the word advocate, is the word parakletos. So the Muslim apologist claims that it's supposed to be parakletos, which means renowned. Okay, so what they're trying to change here is they're trying to say that Muhammad is the helper that's going to be sent to his disciples, okay, Um, instead of the Holy Spirit. And this is their claim, but there's no way that Muhammad could be with his disciples of Jesus for all time because Muhammad is dead. 
the Muslim will proclaim that the, the, the Bible has been altered or changed. So the Muslim will argue that this helper that Jesus is sending is Muhammad and not the Holy Spirit. At any rate, John 14, 26 specifically identifies Paracletus with the Holy Spirit. You know, sometimes Muslims will latch onto the fact that their religion is growing so fast and so rapidly that it's proof that it's divine. But there have been other empires that have spread. I mean, think about Alexander the Great. Think about Genghis Khan. Think about the rapid spread of communism. Does that mean there, those empires are also divine as well because they spread rapidly? I mean, the Muslim's argument is simply an appeal to irrelevancy, like Walter Martin says. It's so important to share the love of God to those who depend on their own works to get into heaven. You know, biblical salvation doesn't depend on man's imperfections. It depends on the work, grace, and love of God. Now, one final word is the Christian should love the Muslim. You know, Muslims have a great zeal for God, and we can see that in the way that they want to serve God and worship God. And the Christian should lean into that, and the Christian should respect that about the Muslim. And, and when you're sharing uh, with a Muslim the life-changing gospel of Jesus, you can show it as an example through your life and your love and devotion to God through the power of the word of God and through the influence of the Holy Spirit. And they can see the love of Christ in you. And that's the only way that a Muslim is going to get saved. And it's the only influence you have is if they see Christ in you and they see the power and love of God in your life. See, because it's a love that's missing from their own God. The best weapon we have to win a Muslim to Christ is the insurmountable, immeasurable, indescribable, infinite love of God. Well, that's our time for today. I want to thank you for joining me on this journey. And uh, we might have another episode about Islam in the future. Until that time, God bless.